Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. I am Jolan Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Serdorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable is an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with the Pledge Radio in Michigan and Lancer Broadcasting in the Midwest. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. We thank you for tuning in to America's Roundtable. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on the International Leaders Summit. We thank each one of you, our engaged listening audience via the Pledge Radio in Michigan, Lancer Broadcasting in the Midwest, for joining us on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. Today, we're truly honored to have a very special guest on America's Roundtable. Joining us from Britain, Roger Helmer. Roger Helmer served in the political arena as a UK member of the European Parliament, serving in the Conservative and the UK parties, respectively. He has worked with several multinational companies, including Procter & Gamble, National Semiconductor, Reader's Digest, and Guinness PLC. Roger has spent more than 10 years living and working abroad, mainly in Southeast Asia. He is well known for his efforts in spearheading the United Kingdom's Brexit movement with leaders including Nigel Farage and other conservative leaders. It has been a great honor to have worked with Roger Helmer in Brussels and the United Kingdom in advancing our shared values and principles. Roger Helmer delivered keynote addresses at the Jerusalem Leaders Summit in Israel alongside U.S. members of Congress. Roger Helmer, it is our great honor to welcome you to America's Roundtable. Welcome, Roger. Welcome, Roger. Thank you so much, both of you. It's great to be here. Uh, Roger, what are the realities on the ground with the coronavirus and economy in the United Kingdom? Uh, We just read the most recent reports highlighting that the UK reported the highest death toll from COVID-19 and suffered the worst economic hit in Europe. What is your take, Roger, on what is happening in the UK? Uh, Well, in many respects, I think that it was just the circumstances of the UK economy, uh, which is much more of a service economy than most of our European uh, friends. Uh, And that, of course, is much more affected by the lockdown that we've experienced. Uh, But having said that, um, I am very, very worried that the government, in warning people about the dangers Uh, of COVID-19 and constant messages on television and on radio uh, saying you must take care, Uh, initially you must stay home. Now the government, of course, uh, is ending the lockdown and is saying, uh, well, it's about time to get back to work. And the problem we're facing is that people are reluctant to go back to the office partly because of of the scare stories that have been put out uh, and partly because there are so many people working from home who really seem rather to like it. Uh, But I've just seen statistics today showing that of all the major economies in Europe, uh, Britain is way behind in terms of getting people back into the office. Uh, We've got something like... uh, uh, 30% of the people who, w- who should eventually go back to the office who have done so, whereas in most other European countries it's well over 50% and often 60 or 70%. So I think that's a big problem we've faced, and in a sense it's a problem of success. The government set out to terrify people, uh, and it's may- maybe terrified people uh, more than they intended, and it's very difficult to turn that message off. Right. I think it's similar uh, situation here in the U.S. Uh, that people are being afraid, actually terrified, 
intentionally and not to go back because of the election cycle and how economy is going to respond. But I think that also $600 unemployment benefits a week are also deterring people from going back to work here in the U.S. Has also Britain uh, introduced some kind of unemployment benefits or some other scheme for people to stay at home? Yes, we've spent a huge amount of money, many billions of pounds, tens of billions of pounds, uh, on what is called the furlough program, uh, which is saying to employers, uh, look, you may not have a job for somebody right now, uh, but you may well have a job in six months or nine months' time. So the, the government, the state, will pay uh, those workers 80% of what they would normally earn, up to some maximum limit, uh, to stay home. Uh, and that was widely taken up and is widely credited uh, with um, uh, blunting the impact uh, on uh, individuals and families of the lockdown. But, of course, it can't last forever because it's fabulously expensive. And the big decision facing our, our chancellor at the moment, our finance minister, um, is when to stop it. He wants to stop it or phase it out from October. Um, the trade unions and the left are saying, oh, no, no, you must keep it going no matter what the cost. So that's the position on the debate at the moment. Uh, but it's clear uh, if you have a, a problem such as, for example, reopening the schools, and I believe you have the same problem in the States that, uh, uh, that we have uh, here in the UK, from what I've heard, that the teachers don't want to go back. Uh, and it's, somebody described it as a ransom note. They've said, well, we'll go back and teach, provided you can fulfill these uh, 50 conditions. You know, one of the conditions is that all waste bins in classrooms should have lids on them. You know, it's just absurdly trivial things. Uh, and they're saying, well, we won't go back until you've done all these things. Uh, and frankly, many people are sitting around their kitchen tables here in the UK uh, and saying, hang on a minute, these people don't want to work. The teachers, they shouldn't be paid. Uh, and we look at all the work that our health service staff have done over the uh, over the period of the virus and the lockdown, uh, we look at the supermarket staff who've kept food coming. If the supermarket staff had taken the same view as the teachers, uh, then we wouldn't have eaten during the lockdown. So really, the idea that the teachers, really months after the lockdown was initiated, can say, uh, well, it, it might still not be quite safe enough for us, so we're not prepared to resume children's education, uh, I think that's caused a great deal of, of shock and distress in the country. Mm, right. Uh, Roger, uh, the United Kingdom stopped being a member of the European Union on January 31st, 2020, when it withdrew from the EU's political institutions. The UK is now in a transition period in which trading relationship with the EU member countries continues until December 31, 2020, this year. The original idea of the European Economic Community and a free trade zone of sovereign countries enjoying free movement of goods, capital and people morphed into a corruption-prone political union whereby unelected bureaucrats in Brussels assumed ever-increasing unchecked powers and are coming up with new legislation for all EU member countries. The United Kingdom is the first country to leave the European Union. Roger, you were one of the pioneers of the Brexit movement, with Nigel Farage, Sir Ivan Lawrence, Sir Bill Cash and other conservative British leaders. What is the status of the British exit, known as Brexit? Well, the phrase that comes uh, back to me there, Natasha, is the phrase, 
phony war. Do you remember when at the beginning of the Second World War we were, we were at war, but for some time uh, there were no guns being fired? Uh, it's a bit like that. Uh, yes, we've left the European Union, but under a transition deal that really keeps everything much the same uh, until the end of the year. Now, what happens at the end of the year? We have negotiations going on at the moment, and there are two major uh, sticking points, well, three, really. The first one is the insistence uh, by the European Union that we maintain their regulations. And they're saying, well, if you want to have free trade with us, you want to ship things in without uh, customs declarations and so on, uh, then, of course, you must obey our rules. And we're saying, hang on, uh, we're going to be an independent country. We don't have to do that. Uh, Japan, with whom they have a free trade deal, doesn't do that. Canada, with whom they have a free trade deal, doesn't do that. So they're trying to impose onerous restrictions on us, uh, which they don't impose on other free trade agreements. They're also trying to impose their state aid rules, um, which is uh, actually very ironic, because as a response to the COVID crisis, uh, several European countries, including particularly Germany, uh, are supporting corporations because they have to and the corporations will otherwise collapse but in breach of the state aid rules and the other big issue that we're fighting about is fisheries um, because uh, our fishing waters i think something like 70 percent of all european union fishing waters because we have the north sea and so on um, and they are saying, well, of course, we must have the same access to your fisheries as we had previously. We can't change those arrangements. Uh, and we're saying, no, one, one of the big things uh, psychologically, if not economically, one of the big factors in Brexit uh, was that we want our fisheries back. You know, it was a major industry that was given away to Europe when we joined the European Union. Um, and there's been a smoldering resentment over that. And although, as I say, it isn't huge economically, it's, it's only less than 1% of GDP, uh, it still has an enormous resonance with us. And the idea that the, uh, the Europeans, they're saying we, we will exchange free trade for fisheries. Uh, and, of course, you don't exchange free trade for something unrelated. Uh, the whole point of a free trade deal is that we ship stuff on a free trade basis to them, and they ship stuff on a free trade basis to us. Uh, and it's intended to be a win-win deal, and it would be a win-win deal. Uh, and if they then say, oh, yes, but our price for a free trade deal uh, is a whole shopping list of other issues, that's the problem. So it's looking more likely, I think, that we might, in fact, leave... Uh, the European Union on the 31st of December uh, under world trade terms. Um, and, of course, those who wish to stay in the European Union throw up their hands in horror and say, we can't possibly do that, it'll be a disaster. And when we say, well, hang on, but for most of the countries outside the EU, we already do business on world trade terms. We do business with America, broadly speaking, on world trade terms. Um, and that seems to work perfectly well. They have difficulty coming to terms with that. But I think that clearly it would be better for both parties if we had a genuine free trade deal that was simply limited to free trade and didn't involve fisheries and state aids and all those things. Uh, but I, I fear that Europe will refuse that um, because they have this absolute didactic commitment to getting their own way. And if they can't get their own way, I'm afraid a lot of big European companies, starting with the, the car companies, but the French champagne houses and on and on, uh, they are going to lose a lot of business. Uh, take the wine trade, for example. Um, suddenly, it's going to be more attractive to buy American wine and indeed Australian and South African wine 
uh, and South American wine and less attractive to buy European wine. And we drink vast quantities of European wine. Roger, on the subject of trade, reports suggest that the United States and Britain still have more work to do on a free trade agreement as stated by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo during his recent visit to London last month on July the 21st. Reporters have suggested that Secretary Pompeo hoped a deal could be finalized before too long. And I quote an article that was uh, uh, shared by Reuters. I quote, A third round of negotiations scheduled for later this month, a primary focus for the United States, is to see that we can make progress on this and bring this to a closure just as quickly as possible, uh, Mike Pompeo said during a news conference briefing, unquote. Roger, the Brexit critics in Brussels had pushed this narrative that without the large EU market consisting of 500 million consumers, including Britain's nearly 70 million citizens, that the UK would falter and the economy would be adversely affected by not trading with the EU as a member. The Brussels elite did not factor that there is a greater trading world out there, the dynamic U.S. economy of 340 million. And I might add that the U.S. economy will certainly be humming as we secure a vaccine for the coronavirus and the U.K.'s natural partners through the Commonwealth of Nations, a growing market of 2.4 billion people, including India's 1.3 billion. From your vantage point in Britain and your experiences as a business leader for multinationals around the world and your stellar work as a member of the European Parliament representing the U.K., what are engaged UK citizens and leaders hoping for in a United States, United Kingdom trade deal, and how will the ties to the US and the Commonwealth be strengthened, especially on the trade fronts? Well, I think that the, the great opportunity, as you say, is, is for us to look outside the EU. Uh, it's true that there were no uh, specific barriers to our trading outside the EU, but so much focus has been on the EU, and the fact that we've left the EU will now require a new focus elsewhere. Something to, to keep in mind is that the European Union, leaving aside the immediate short-term coronavirus effects, the European Union over recent years has not shown any significant growth uh, and indeed is projected by more or less everybody who's looked at it to be declining rapidly in terms of share of world trade. Uh, so what we will be doing is pivoting from a stagnant uh, area and a stagnant trading partner to where the growth is. And where is the growth? It's in North America, it's in South America, it's in Asia. Um, these are the places that we need to focus our minds on. Uh, and it really is a huge opportunity. Uh, now, I was looking at the two-way trading uh, in goods between Britain and America, and I have a figure, it's two years old, so I'm sorry I haven't got the latest figure, but it was $127 billion in two-way two trade. It is uh, a substantial amount of money. The U.S. is the U.K.'s biggest external customer uh, uh, other than Germany, um, and the U.K., I think, is the U.S.'s fifth largest external customer. That's the sort of scale. So uh, it's a major trading relationship already. And if we can free up various areas uh, of particularly uh, duties and so on, then that trade can be increased. Uh, and that will be hugely to the benefit 
of Britain and also, I believe, hugely to the benefit of the U.S. economy. Um, what I'm worried about, the pattern that I'm seeing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that on the Republican side, there is considerable enthusiasm, uh, both for the transatlantic relationship and for the idea specifically of a trade deal. On the Democratic side, I mean, who knows where they're going under this Biden plan, um, but thinking of some of the remarks that Nancy Pelosi has made recently, uh, she would like to make a, an American trade deal conditional upon various other things. I mean, she was talking more like a European bureaucrat than, a, uh, than an American uh, statesperson. Uh, that is a worry. And, of course, with the presidential election coming, it is another reason why um, I am still passionately hopeful uh, that we're going to see a Republican victory uh, in November. But can I just uh, draw attention to one point? We, it's managing opinion in the UK, and those who wanted to stay in Europe uh, will, for that reason, be very difficult about a US trade deal. And they will pick on any high-profile issue uh, that they think will get headlines in tabloid newspapers, uh, and things like uh, chlorinated chicken, beef uh, treated with antibiotics and so on, and hormones, um, these are issues of concern. And I know that on the U.S. side, they would simply like to ignore those issues completely, and I understand why. And if I were sitting in, uh, uh, in Washington, I'd want to as well. Um, but I, I think we need to be prepared to make some uh, cosmetic concessions, at least, in order to cover off those difficulties. The obvious solution I see on the chlorinated chicken and hormone beef is simply a, a, a labeling solution. Personally, I've, I've eaten American chicken and eaten American beef and thoroughly enjoyed it and come to no harm. And I would be very happy to buy American chicken and American beef uh, in a British supermarket. Uh, and if those issues are at least covered by labeling, then it's much more difficult for the other side to complain. Roger, uh, what has been the response of the United Kingdom toward China, uh, which has been aggressively pursuing business deals in Europe? Uh, for Europe, China's reach extends even territorially. So it is not just the intellectual property theft and cyber attacks, but also building Huawei communication infrastructure in a number of countries and building bridges and exerting greater commercial influence and potential control of seaports in Italy and Croatia which are both NATO members, in the Adriatic Sea region. Indeed. Um, I think there's been a huge change over recent years. We went through a phase of talking up a new golden age of relations between Britain and China. Um, this was back in David Cameron's day, and George Osborne was very enthusiastic about it. Since then, what have we seen? We've seen this dreadful clampdown in Hong Kong. And I used to live and work in Hong Kong, and I feel particularly badly about what's going on there. Um, but there is a similar issue, perhaps lower key, but in Taiwan. We've got Taiwan, which is uh, one of those Asian countries with a very clear commitment to the sort of values we've been talking about, to free markets and trade and so on. And the attitude of China towards uh, uh, Taiwan is, is very aggressive. We've seen their treatment of the Uyghur minority, and, uh, the use of concentration camps there. Uh, and I think, uh, and, and here we have some resonance for, for what President Trump has been saying, uh, the Chinese virus, it's very clear that China uh, was unhelpful in the early days and did what authoritarian regimes always do, which is they, they tried to talk down the problems and say, don't worry, it's going to be all right, we're going to get it sorted. Uh, when they knew that it, there was human-to-human -human transmission, they knew that there was a huge risk. If they had moved more quickly, 
uh, in particular, if they had stopped their own people from traveling during the Chinese New Year celebrations, um, then the uh, pandemic could have been contained much more easily. So there's a change of attitude. There's a pressure group formed in the British Parliament, the China China Watch Group, I think they call it, um, which is uh, generally, but not exclusively, the same people who were promoting Brexit, in fact. Um, there was huge pressure on the government to pull back on the Huawei um, telecommunications deal, um, and that is now going ahead. And the only question is, you know, do they have to get out in five years' time or do they have to get out by Tuesday? So that debate is still uh, ongoing. Uh, the other big issue, of course, is uh, for us in Britain is nuclear power because uh, um, we've got China deeply involved in a couple of new nuclear power projects, uh, financing in one case and actually uh, designing the reactor in the other case. Uh, and I think just the same worries that we have about Huawei uh, are uh, applying equally to the nuclear power industry. You know, if they turned off our telecommunications, that would be uh, a disaster. If they turned off our power supplies, that would be pretty much a disaster too. Right, Roger, and I'm not sure whether you are aware that EU taxpayers, and I believe UK taxpayers as well, because this uh, this project has started uh, a year ago or so, so they are providing a grant for the bridge in Croatia, which is being built by Communist China, state-owned China Road and Bridge Corporation, which is part of its Belt and Road Initiative. So the sole purpose of a $420 million worth bridge in southern Croatia, which is paid by hardworking EU taxpayers and UK taxpayers, is to avoid a 12-mile stretch of the land road through Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it is a bridge to nowhere. So $420 million going into hands of communist China state-owned company for the bridge with no economic rationale and no EU commissioner has been made accountable for this grave abuse of EU taxpayer funds. Roger, what is your take on this? Uh, well, I'm horrified but not surprised. Uh, you remind me of my first visit to uh, to Vietnam um, some years ago uh, when I discovered uh, a six-lane highway bridge, uh, which was hugely impressive. The only thing was that on either side of the river that it was bridging, uh, the road devolved from a six-lane highway into a dirt road on both sides. Um, uh, and this sounds a bit like a similar project. I'll be honest, I don't know a great deal about that. But I am very, very worried about the misspending of foreign aid generally. I mean, never mind giving money to Croatia. We're also giving money to China, can you believe? Right. Um, yeah, amazing. Not very much, but we're giving money to China. Uh, I'm much more relaxed about the fact that we're giving money to India. But given that India has nuclear weapons and a space program, um, I really think they, they probably don't need uh, charity handouts uh, from the U.K., uh, and I think there is far too little control on this sort of funding, uh, and especially through the European Union. And one of the good things about finally getting out of the clutches of Brussels is that at least we'll be able to make our own decisions on these things uh, and take responsibility for them and not have to put up with decisions coming out of uh, a foreign capital city. Roger, we all care about the environment. However, as we have talked over the years, we need to approach energy and the environment with a prudent approach. Less government uh, intrusion and mandates by bureaucrats, big government schemes, 
and replacing that with free market environmentalism with principled solutions that emerge from the private sector with smart ideas and practical approaches. Well, Roger, we recently heard from former Vice President Joe Biden, a presidential candidate, who unveiled a $2 trillion proposal to combat climate change. And he's calling for a bigger investment and faster action than he backed during the Democratic primaries earlier this year. Now, Joe Biden, with his wish list of spending more U.S. taxpayer funds, wants to replace the current energy that we have uh, with wind and other renewables. However, the reports from Europe and specifically Germany, the European uh, continent's largest economy, reveals results which are less than stellar and, one might add, a great failure. While America's voters took a look at um, Biden's trillion-dollar plan on overhauling the electric grid, and uh, trying to impose green electricity or clean electricity by 2035, uh, we can take a closer look at Germany's actions which have been touted by Al Gore and others on the left as a model for the world. And recently we came across an article from Der Spiegel, one of Germany's great publications, and the report states that in over the past five years alone uh, that Germany... Uh, taxpayers have spent over $36 billion annually, and that opposition to renewables is growing in the German countryside. And Der Spiegel cites a recent estimate that it would cost Germany $3.4 trillion. And uh, analysts from McKinsey have been following the uh, policies of Germany since 2012, and their latest report is damning. And it says that Germany is far from meeting the targets it set for itself. From your perspective, what are the lessons that we can learn here in the United States from the European approach, Germany's approach on renewables, and as we look at Biden's plan of spending trillions of dollars uh, to combat climate change, what would you suggest for our American uh, voters, listeners, the electorate? Well, I, I think you, you've covered the disaster in Germany very clearly there, Joel. I was horrified to see that Biden was going to do this. Now, if he were going to do it when there was no experience in the world and it was the first time somebody had tried it, uh, it would be fair to say, well, hang on a minute, think about it carefully because it's a big risk. Uh, but in fact, as you rightly point out, somebody else has tried it. Um, the Germans uh, have uh, spent, I think, so far around about a trillion dollars on their uh, uh, here's a German word, forgive my pronunciation, Energiewende, which means the, the energy switch. Um, they've spent a huge amount of money in the last 10 years on it. As you rightly say, it hasn't achieved the objectives uh, that were set for it. Less than 10% uh, of the grid uh, extensions and modernizations that are planned have so far been achieved. What they have achieved is to raise prices for energy, both to German industry and to German consumers, they will have to spend another $2 trillion or so over the next 30 years if they continue to pursue this. Uh, and the real kicker on this one is that they haven't achieved the uh, emissions targets they set themselves. And what they're finding is, having closed down nuclear, which was a disastrous decision, they are then having to keep coal-fired power stations in use, and in some cases using uh, so-called brown coal, which is one of the dirtiest coals you can find, uh, in order to keep the lights on. So it has been, in just about every respect, 
uh, a disaster. Uh, there were lots of people on the green side of the debate, but I think this was four or five or six years ago who quoted Germany as an example of making a huge effort. Now, as you rightly say, the media are picking up the disaster. I see that Forbes magazine uh, referred to uh, the Energiewende, the biggest p political project since German reunification, threatens to fail, they say. Uh, and the New York Times even refers to the tragedy of, of uh, Germany's energy experiment. So this is something that we can look at and, and say, did it work or didn't it work? Uh, and the answer is, no, it didn't work. Uh, and in America, you have, in fact, been very successful in reducing emissions, primarily by replacing coal with gas. Um, and it seems to me that that sort of practical move, you've also got gas and oil in America, uh, so you've managed to reduce dependence on unreliable political areas, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, Russia, uh, those suppliers of, of gas and oil. Uh, the idea that now um, Biden wants to go around and, and turn off uh, gas, uh, he wants to stop uh, fracking, at least on, on uh, government land, um, and he wants to uh, rely on uh, unreliable uh, renewables instead, is a really retrograde step. It's certainly true that after COVID-19 and after the recession and after the lockdown, we will need heavy spending to help the economy recover. Um, but what we don't need is the sort of huge tax disincentives for individuals and corporations uh, that Biden is proposing. Uh, we need to encourage investment. We need to encourage entrepreneurialism. We want to encourage growth and jobs. Uh, and uh, we want to bring back in America, you want to, you want to bring back so much of the uh, manufacturing uh, that's been offshored in recent times. Uh, and if you were looking for a way to do it wrong, uh, then the Biden plan is a perfect example. By reducing taxes from high 35% corporate tax to 21%, there were some $700 billion that were brought in the country that were offshored previously. So uh, there is a potential for greater investment in the country. Indeed. And, and if, if Biden's plan goes through, of course, you, you simply reverse the incentive and the incentive becomes to go away rather than to come home. And it appears that uh, Great Britain has made the great right decision in pulling out of the European Union. And uh, let's hope and trust that America's uh, uh, taxpayers and the electorate make a wise decision on November 3 in choosing a candidate that will continue America's greatness and uh, advancing free market principles. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much, Roger Helmer, for joining us from the United Kingdom. Roger Helmer served in the political arena as a UK member of the European Parliament, serving in the Conservative and UK parties respectively. He served in the business arena as well and spent time in Southeast Asia, as he mentioned earlier on. He's well known for his efforts in spearheading the United Kingdom's Brexit movement with leaders including Nigel Farage and other Conservative leaders. And it has truly been a great honor to have worked with Roger in in Brussels and in other places around the world including Israel. Thank you Roger for joining us today and uh, we really appreciate your leadership uh, continuing these days in educating, illuminating our electorate and our listeners. Thank you Roger. Thank you so much, it's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. I am Joel Anand Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Serdorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable is an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with the Pledge Radio in Michigan and Lancer Broadcasting in the Midwest. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. We thank you for tuning in to America's Roundtable. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on the International Leaders Summit.